Leviticus chapter 4, verse 1 through 7, verse 12 through 14, verse 22 through 23, verse 27 through 28, chapter 5, verse 7, verse 11, and verse 13. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He is to present the bull at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it there before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and carry it into the tent of meeting. He is to dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain of the sanctuary. The priest shall then put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. The rest of the bull's blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering at the entrance to the tent of meeting. All the rest of the bull he must take outside the camp to a place ceremonial clean where the ashes are thrown and burn it there in a wood fire on the ash heap. If the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though the community is unaware of the matter, when they realize their guilt and the sin they committed becomes known, the assembly must bring a young bull as a sin offering and present it before the tent of meeting. When a leader sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden, in any of the commands of the Lord, his God, when he realizes his guilt and the sin he has committed becomes known, he must bring as an offering a male goat without defect. If any member of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands when they realize their guilt and the sin they have committed becomes known, they must bring as their offering for the sin they committed, a female goat without defect. Anyone who cannot afford a lamb is to bring two doves or two young pigeons to the Lord as a penalty for their sin. If, however, they cannot afford two doves or two young pigeons, they are to bring as an offering for their sin a tenth of an ephod of the finest flour for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them for any of these sins they committed, and they will be forgiven. The word of the Lord. Have you ever thought about why Christianity in particular is so offensive to people? Um, for instance, Jim Gaffigan is a very famous comic. In one of his shows, he says, I do want everyone to feel comfortable. That's why I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. 
It's funny, but it's funny because it's painfully funny because nobody you talk to on the street wants you to talk to them about Jesus, um, which is kind of a little odd because we live in a promotion culture, if you think about it. Um, we're constantly promoting all kinds of stuff, uh, especially on social media. We're always promoting like a gig or a book or a photo we took or a political cause or a juice cleanse. Um, and we don't get offended by any of that stuff, except maybe the juice cleanse. But Jesus does have a, a way of offending people because the message of Jesus is inextricably linked to this message that says, you're a sinner in need of salvation. And who wants to have that conversation? We're like, yeah, could we talk about the juice cleanse instead? There are very few things in our culture that are more offensive or primitive, or negative than this idea of sin. And at a certain level, you know, that makes a lot of sense because um, for centuries, religious people have used words like sin and sinner to degrade people, demonize people, marginalize them, oppress them, even kill them. And yet, without the idea of sin, what do we even call that? You know, Back in the 80s and 90s, um, there was a thing called moral relativism. It was the reigning paradigm. People would say, hey, who's to say what's right and wrong? That's changed. Over the last five to ten years, our culture has increasingly become a culture of, of moral outrage, especially on social media. Some people call it digital outrage. There's been a spike in our culture, and I think very rightly, um, a big part of this, a, a, a much more heightened awareness and um, willingness to be very vocal, um, to call out things like evil and injustice um, in our world. And so um, that's a good thing. And yet we have a very shallow understanding of sin. We have this very perplexing problem as a result of this in our world, because how do we talk about um, the things we see in our world, things like evil, injustice, violence, oppression, darkness, cruelty. How do we talk about those kinds of things if we have no category for thinking about those things within ourselves? This passage that we just read helps us because it's all about sin. Um, we're in a series on the book of Leviticus. Um, Leviticus is pretty well known for being a, a very strange, weird book full of all kinds of weird, bloody rituals and laws. Um, but at its heart, Leviticus is really all about transformation. God wants to transform you. He wants to transform the world. Leviticus is all about how that transformation happens. And so the beginning of the book is, is, has a series of five offerings or sacrifices, each of which shows us something crucial about this transformation process. And this week we're looking at the fourth offering. It's called the sin offering. The Hebrew word, are you ready? It's hata. Can we say that? Hata. Uh, that is literally the Hebrew word for sin. This passage gives us a window into what sin really is and how to really deal with it. And that is very helpful for us in our culture because I said, um, we have a very shallow understanding of sin and therefore a very shallow understanding of how to deal with evil in our world. So let's take a look at it in this passage by seeing three things about sin. We're going to see the democracy of sin. We're going to see uh, the pollution of sin. And lastly, we're going to see the cleansing of sin. All right? The democracy, the pollution, and the cleansing of sin. First, 
um, the democracy of sin. Uh, so in this passage, what you have is uh, you see God addressing various groups of people and giving them instructions on how to deal with sin in their lives. So if you look at verse 3, God says, if the anointed priest sins, uh, then here's what you do. Uh, But then if he keeps going in verse 13, he says, if the whole Israelite community sins. Verse 22, when a leader sins. Or down in verse 27, if any member of the community sins. So, you know, everybody's included here. Everybody sins. And even more than that, notice um, we've seen this before in Leviticus. There are different provisions made for different economic levels. So if you're rich, God says bring a bull. But if you're not rich but you still have resources, it says bring a, a lamb or a goat. But if that's too expensive for you, God says bring a couple of birds. And, and if even that is too expensive for you, in other words, even if you're dirt poor, God says, well, bring some flour. Do you realize what we're seeing here? You've got rich and poor. You've got individuals. You've got whole communities. You've got the leaders. That's the, the, the social elites. You've also got regular members of the community. Everybody's included here. This is showing us that everybody sins. Everybody. That's why it's a democracy, because everybody participates in this. Now, someone might say, well, sure, okay, I I can accept that there are some evil people out there, but listen, I'm not an axe murderer, I'm not a bigot, Um, I don't even cheat on my taxes, so how can I be a sinner? Well, this passage really helps us with that. Um, Notice at the very beginning, God says, when anyone sins unintentionally, and then Each one of the people that he addresses, he says the same thing. If this person sins unintentionally, if this person over here sins unintentionally. So what's going on with that? God is showing us that there's a difference between what he calls high-handed sin and what we might call here hidden sin. So what does that mean? Let me explain. In the book of Numbers, which is the next book after Leviticus, in chapter 15, there's another place where God is talking about unintentional sin. But then right after that, in verse 30, it says this, God says, but the person who does anything with a high hand reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from the people, because they have despised the word of the Lord and broken his commandment. So God is saying that there's a difference between what he calls high-handed sin and hidden sin. What's high-handed sin? High-handed sin is is whenever we willfully or intentionally or flagrantly disobey God. It's like when you say, well, I know this is wrong, but I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. It's like open rebellion against God. Okay, so you know, in our culture, we have a tendency to make a distinction between what we would call, quote, evil people. And usually that's a very small group, and it only includes people like you know, serial murderers, white supremacists, and Lord Voldemort, and this much bigger group, which is everybody else, which that's all the good people, okay? We make a distinction between those two groups. But if we say, look, I'm not an axe murderer, therefore I have no sin in my life. In biblical terms, that's a way of saying, I have no high-handed sin, therefore God should be pleased with me. God should accept me because I'm one of the good people. But this passage is showing us that there's a difference between high-handed sin and hidden sin, and both of these are forms of sin. 
So once again, if we look back in our passage at verse 13, it says, If the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though the community is unaware of the matter, that phrase, unaware, literally in the Hebrew, it's if it's hidden from their eyes. It's if it's hidden from their eyes. That means that um, this is saying that just because you're not an axe murderer doesn't mean there's no sin in your life. There's a difference between high-handed sin and hidden sin. In fact, hidden sin could potentially be even more dangerous precisely because we can't see it. At least with the the high-handed sin, you know, you know when you're committing murder or adultery, when you're lying or when you're um, stealing. But hidden sin, it blinds us even to our very own capacity for evil. It's like we can't even see that it's there. So one of the most stunning examples of this is the story of a man named Yehiel Dinur. Yehiel Dinur was someone who was in the Nazi death camps during World War II. Um, Like millions of other Jews, he was tortured and brutalized in the Nazi death camps, but unlike millions of others, he was one of the few who actually escaped with his life. Um, years later, they captured Adolf Eichmann, who was the mastermind. He, like, he was the brains, the whole architect behind the death camps. He, he put the whole thing together. They brought Adolf Eichmann to Jerusalem and put him on trial. And they called Yehiel Dinur to be one of the witnesses in the trial. You can actually watch his testimony on YouTube. It's amazing. And so he comes to testify, and, and there's Adolf Eichmann. He's sitting in a glass booth in the courtroom, and Yehiel Dinur begins to testify about all the brutalities and the horrors and the things that he experienced in the death camp. And at one point, it's amazing, he, he shrieks, falls out of his chair, and then just falls face down on the floor. He's so overcome that two people actually have to come and and pick him up and set him back down on his chair. It's an incredibly moving thing to watch. Years later, Mike Wallace, who was one of the famous hosts of 60 Minutes, in 1986, he had Yehil Dinur come on 60 Minutes, and he interviewed him um, on 60 Minutes, and he asked him about that moment when he collapsed. He said, what was happening then? Why were you so overcome? Was it fear? Was it hatred? Was it the horror of reliving all those memories? And Yehiel Dinur said this. He said, it wasn't any of those things. He said, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. Eichmann is in all of us. Now, I don't know if that offends you, but if someone like Yehiel Dinur can say that about himself, where does that leave the rest of us? The democracy of sin means that we all have the same capacity for evil inside each one of us. That no one of us gets to say, that's not me, I don't participate in this. We all have the same capacity for evil, and we're all blind in many ways to that capacity that we have within us. There's hidden sin in our lives. That's the democracy of sin. But secondly, I want to take a look at the pollution of sin, Um, because here's the idea. All right, here's where we're at. Sin is something much deeper inside of us. Um, But what is that something deeper? In verse 3, we saw that this phrase, sin offering, okay, that's the Hebrew word hata. It literally means sin. But Hebrew, um, the same word in different forms can mean different things. 
So not only does the Hebrew word hata mean sin, um, in other places it can also mean cleansing. So there are other translations of the Bible in which this sin offering is actually translated purification offering. Because that's what this offering is intended to do, to purify us, to cleanse us. Now, that leads us to one of the most offensive and difficult ideas when it comes to this whole idea of sin. Because here's how the the sin offering purifies, okay? Here's how it works. In each case of sin, notice that after they killed the animal, the priest would go around with the blood, and he would sprinkle different places of the tent with the blood, The idea is that the tent is the place where God dwells. And because God is pure and holy, there can't be anything unclean or dirty or defiling in his presence. And so the blood sprinkles the tent. The blood cleanses the tent, which is the place of God's dwelling, in order to make a way for us to come into the presence of God. Now, this is really one of the most offensive and difficult things about the whole idea of sin. It's this idea that sin pollutes us, that sin makes us dirty and unclean. You know, the Bible uses many different images to talk about sin because sin really is a very complex thing. It's nuanced. Human beings are complex beings. That means the human condition is a very complex condition. So the Bible uses different images to talk about sin because no one single image can possibly capture the whole um, idea of what sin really is. So in some places, the Bible will talk about sin in terms of slavery. In other places, it will compare it to addiction or um, adultery or sickness or, in this case, pollution. Now, some of those images don't offend us as much, do they? For instance, if we talk about sin in terms of sickness, that, that's not nearly as offensive because we think like, oh, well, sickness, that's like something sad that happens to us, but it doesn't make me a bad person. I'm not really responsible for that. But this idea that, that sin pollutes us, that, that, that we're dirtier or unclean somehow, that is incredibly offensive, especially when we think about the ways that people have used the word dirty sinner. It just feels so shaming. It feels so demeaning. It feels like an assault on on human dignity. And there's no doubt, this is a difficult concept, but let me offer us just a couple of thoughts to kind of help us through this. Um, First, just because we call something polluted, that is not necessarily an assault on its dignity. So for instance, um, you know, the Mississippi River has a fair amount of pollution in it. And just because we call the Mississippi River polluted, is that an assault on its dignity? No. In fact, it's really the opposite. Because if the Mississippi River weren't such an amazing, majestic, glorious waterway, it wouldn't be nearly as tragic that the thing is so polluted. You see, the river itself is not the pollution. The river is polluted. The pollution is an extra element that gets added into the river. In the same way, to talk about sin as pollution is to say that there's an extra element that is now added into our lives, that has come into our lives. It should never have been there in the first place because sin doesn't define human beings. Sin distorts human beings. That is a very important distinction to remember. Sin does not define us. What does? Genesis 1 says every human being is created in the image of God. That means the thing that defines humanity is that we are beings created for glory and honor and dignity. 
That's what defines us. The pollution is something extra that gets added in that should never have been there in the first place. So what is the nature of this pollution? What is the nature of this added contaminant, as it were, that's come into our lives? Well, Jesus himself actually gives us a lot of help with this. There's a very interesting conversation in uh, the Gospel of Mark, the account of Jesus' life provided by Mark. In chapter 7, Jesus is having a conversation um, with some religious leaders. Actually, they're debating with Jesus over the nature of what makes someone unclean. What makes someone dirty? And the religious leaders, they're very focused on external behavior. They're saying, it, it, that's what makes someone unclean. But Jesus amazingly says this in chapter 7. He says, nothing outside of a person can defile them or pollute them or contaminate them. He says, what comes out of a person, that's what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now, I want to think about this for a second. Um, Probably the lowest common denominator in our culture for how we think about Jesus is, at the very least, most people will say Jesus was a great moral teacher. A human teacher, but a great moral teacher. That, that, very few people would argue with that. But do you see what Jesus is telling us here? He's saying, yeah, murder's evil. And we would all agree with him. Yeah, murderers, those are evil people. But he's also saying, look at, he says that greed is evil. He says that envy and arrogance, that that's evil. The greatest moral teacher is calling us all evil because who among us is without greed of some kind or arrogance or envy of some kind? Jesus is talking about our heart motivations. He's saying that our hearts get polluted with impure motives, selfish motives, self-centered motives. And understand, Jesus is not saying that we never do good deeds or that we never have any good motivations. He is saying that even our very best deeds can be polluted or corrupted or contaminated with impure motives. So let me give you an example of this. There's a very brilliant, very funny show on network TV right now. Jenny and I are huge fans of The Good Place. Um, uh, the Good Place is all about a group of people who end up in the bad place, which is hell, although they never call it that in the show. It's just the bad place. Um, but they think it's the good place. And some of them think that they actually belong there. So one of those people is a woman named Tahani. She, um, in her life, uh, she was a, a famous philanthropist who raised billions of dollars for charity. She also lived her whole life in the shadow of her even more famous sister, Camilla. But because she was such a good person in her life, um, she thinks that she really belongs in the good place. And so when they realize what's happened, she goes to the person in charge, Michael, and she says, excuse me, there's been a mistake here. Um, I'm one of the good people, and I belong in the good place, the real good place with the real good people. Who do I talk to about this? And Michael says, I, I don't know if you understand, you know, you actually belong here. Uh, the reason is because you never really cared about the people that you were helping. You were only doing it for fame or status or to spite your family. And Tahani, she's like, she's indignant. She says, 
you know, I, I beg your pardon. I, you know, I understand that I'm not perfect, um, but I was a really good person. I raised billions of dollars for charity. I am a good person, and I defy you or anyone else to prove otherwise. So Michael says, okay, um, you know, I never really did show you how you died. Um, would you like to see? And she says, okay. So they go back into her life, and he, they relive this memory. What happened was Tahani was so jealous of her sister that, um, that she went to an event in Cleveland where her sister was being celebrated, complete with life-sized statue of her sister. <laughs> and, and her sister just snubs her and humiliates her. And Tahani is so furious that she takes a rope and throws it over the statue and tries to pull the statue down, but just ends up crushing herself instead. And that's how she dies. And so they come back from the memory into the episode, and, and Tahani looks at Michael, and her eyes are just like gibbous and protruding with this look of shock and revelation on her face. And she's like, oh no, I died in Cleveland? (laughs) And Michael says, I don't think that should be your biggest takeaway from this story. (laughs) And so you see Tahani, she starts wrestling with this. She says, is that all I ever really cared about? Just outshining my sister? gaining praise and acclaim? Because, I mean, I did gain praise and acclaim. You know, sometimes on some occasions, I would have to say I gained more praise and acclaim than my sister Camilla. So, (laughs) oh, oh, I see. She's What did Tahani see? She saw that even our very best deeds can be polluted with all kinds of selfishness, all kinds of self-centeredness, all kinds of greed and envy and pride that our hearts are polluted. She saw that. So that when we come into our own world and we start thinking about this, we realize this doesn't mean that we never do good deeds. It does mean that if we only measure our lives by good deeds without ever taking stock of, of our motivations, then our hearts can remain polluted. Our hearts can, can remain contaminated with these impure motives. So how's that change? What has to happen? Um, if you look back in our passage, you notice it says that um, uh, in, uh, in every single one of these case studies, at some point, it's saying, well, these people have been sinning unintentionally. But at some point, in every one of these places, it says, when the person realizes their guilt, when they realize their guilt, when their sin is made known to them. Now, how does that happen? Something happens to them to help them see their sin, to help them see the hidden sin that's in their life. What is it? It doesn't tell us. Probably because it's something different in everybody's life. But let me offer you a couple of suggestions. And the first one would be this. Um, Have you ever noticed how easy it is to see the faults in other people? Like you can see when they're being selfish or greedy or prideful or manipulative. It's so easy for you to see. And yet somehow these people never seem to see it for themselves. It's like so obvious to everybody else, but they don't see us. And so we're always wondering, how is it that, that all these faults in this person, I see them, everybody else sees them, but, the, but they can't see it. The reason is because hidden sin tends to be hidden only to us. In other words, if you can see the sin in other people's lives that they don't see, don't you realize that means that other people can see the sin in your lives that you don't see? So how does this change? How does this happen? Let me uh, 
offer an encouragement for all of us. One of the ways that we get more of an insight into the hidden motivations of our own hearts is by inviting other people to tell us the things that they see. If you can see it in other people and they can see it in you, are there people in your life that not only have permission, but have you ever invited them to speak into your life like that? And I recognize that can be a really vulnerable, scary thing to do. In fact, um, for the other people too, because, you know, other people may not want to do that. If you're like me, I have a tendency to get a little touchy, get a little self-defensive. I don't like it when people speak truth into my life, but we all need that. Are there people in your life that you're willing to allow do that in your life? Secondly, once we start getting these insights and, and people are telling us these uncomfortable things about ourselves, do we have time and space in our lives for reflection? That is one of the most difficult things for us to do in our contemporary culture. Matt and I were just at a conference this weekend that talked a lot about this. Um, our lives are filled with all kinds of technology and screens that demand our attention 24-7. And you understand what this means. We already don't want to look at that stuff. And so if our lives are now filled with all kinds of technology and screens and all kinds of stuff that is going to make it so easy to, to ignore that all the more, we're going to run to that. Is there time and space and silence, regular time, regular silence in your life every day to reflect to ponder on the things that people are sharing with you, that people are seeing in your life and, and sharing with you. Do we have that kind of time in our lives? We need that. We need it desperately. But there's one more thing that we need, okay? This is our last point. We've seen the democracy of sin. We've seen the pollution of sin. But lastly, we need to see the cleansing of sin. Because here's where we're at. Um, I think up to this point now, we can see that dealing with sin is not simply a matter of behavior modification right? By the way, traditional religion is very focused on behavior modification, isn't it? Traditional religion would tell us, look, you have to be a good person, do the right thing, live a good life. And if you think about it, you realize also that secularism pretty much operates according to the same principle, because it's all about, hey, you've got to say the right thing, you have to do the right thing, you have to be a good person. We're always policing our behavior, we're always trying to modify our behavior. But simply changing our behavior can never really change our heart at the deepest level. That's why we need the gospel. Because the gospel isn't about behavior modification. It's about heart transformation. And there's only one way that that transformation can really happen. How does this offering, this sin offering, work? If you remember, what we saw is the priest takes some of the blood, and he goes around and he sprinkles it around the tent in different places. The idea is that sin defiles God. It defiles his presence. And because the tent is the place where God dwells, the tent needs to be cleansed with the blood in order to make a way for us to come into the presence of God. The, the blood really acts as a cleansing agent for the place of God's presence, okay? Now, that's not all. Not only does the, does the blood, the place of God's presence need to be cleansed with the blood, but the sin, okay, the pollution itself needs to be carried away. It needs to be taken away. It's like taking out the trash. You know, if, if you never take out the trash in your house, not only does it make the place really stinky, 
But if you leave it there long enough, it becomes toxic and poisonous. You'll die if you stay in your house that has too much trash in it for too long. We have to take away the pollution. So if you look at verse 12, it says that the, the priest takes the bull, which has all the sin laid on it. He takes the bull outside the camp and burn it there in a wood fire on the ash heap. So the pollution itself has to be carried away. It has to be taken away, out away from God's presence. And so really the question for us here is, is this. We, we could say, sure, you know, maybe for ancient people, this ritual would have been very moving and, and very powerful, but surely even they were aware that the death of an animal can't possibly accomplish the kind of heart transformation that we need. So how does that transformation really happen? You know, think about this symbol. You know, this would have been incredibly moving for the Israelites who were participating in this. If you had um, been the one who was participating in this offering, you would have brought an animal. It would have been one of your own animals. And you would lead your animal into the courtyard And then you would lay your hand on it. Literally, you would lean all of your weight on the head of the animal as a way of transferring the load and the burden of of your sin and your pollution on top of the head of the animal. And then you would be the one to take the knife and put it to the throat and cut and feel the weight of the animal crumple beneath your hand. And then you would have been there as the priest takes the blood and sprinkles it around the tent. And then you would have gone outside of the camp with the priest while they burned the carcass of the animal. This would have been an incredibly immersive, full-bodied, emotional experience. It would have been incredibly moving. And yet Hebrews chapter 10 in in the New Testament tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can't possibly take away sins. So as moving as as this would have been for the ancient Israelites, even they knew that this was never intended to accomplish the transformation. It was only intended to point towards the one who could. Because what if instead of a bull or a lamb or a goat, what if the God of the universe himself came to earth and became a human being? You know, the God who created the stars, the God who created the world, the God who created you, that God became a human being, and then he said to you, listen, I want you to take me by the hand. Lead me over here to this altar. Here, I'm going to kneel down in front of you. I want you to put your hand on my head. Lean on me. Load all of the weight, the burdens of all that perilous stuff that's in your heart. Load it on top of my head. Now, here's a knife. Put it to my throat and cut. Friends, that is essentially what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus is the hata. He is the sin offering. And the amazing thing about Jesus, Hebrews chapters 10, tells us that Jesus' blood was not just sprinkled on some earthly tent. In Leviticus, in here, yes, that's exactly what happens because the tent, that's the place of God's presence. And so in order for us to come into the presence of God, the place of his presence has to be cleansed. The blood is the cleansing agent, so the blood has to be sprinkled on the tent. The blood cleanses the tent because that's where God dwells. But Hebrews chapter 10 tells us amazingly that the blood of Jesus is not sprinkled on some earthly tent. It's sprinkled on our hearts because the God of the universe doesn't just want to dwell in this world, he wants to take up residence in your heart. You see, the gospel isn't about behavior modification. It's about heart transformation. 
Because the blood begins to work in your heart. The blood begins to, to, to start purifying you and cleansing you, cleansing away the twisted, selfish, self-centered motives of our heart. It begins working on you. The blood creates access for God so that now instead of us going into some tent to meet God, this means God is coming into our hearts to meet us. And that's not all, because what about the pollution? What about the sin? Yes, the blood creates a place for God to dwell, but, but what about the pollution? That has to be carried away. Hebrews chapter 13 goes on to tell us that Jesus Christ was crucified outside of the city gates, that he was crucified outside of the camp. That means that Historically speaking, here's how it went. Jesus Christ was, was paraded in front of all the political authorities and all the religious authorities, and the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, turned to the crowd and said, what do you want me to do with this Jesus whom you call the Christ? And they all said, away, take him away, crucify him. And he was, he was taken outside of the gates, outside of the city, and crucified there. Jesus Christ carried all of our sin and pollution. He was taken away so that God could make a way in our hearts. Jesus Christ was treated like trash so that we could be treated like God's treasure. And the more you see him taken away for you, the more that begins to get to work in your heart. The more that begins to dissolve all the junk and the perilous stuff, and the weight, and the burden, and the motives that are clogging up our heart and clogging up our relationship with God, it begins to cleanse us and take away all of the sin. Friends, is there room in your heart for Jesus to do that for you? If you're here this morning and you're exploring faith in Jesus, what are you doing with the stuff in your heart? What do you do with the envy and the jealousy, or the greed, or the pride, or the selfishness, or the self-centeredness? And what do you do with, with all the fear, and the sadness, and the sorrow, and the shame, and the guilt that results from all of that stuff? What do you do with it? If there is a Savior who died to take it all away, then not only is it now possible for you to see this stuff, it's safe. It's safe. Will you let Jesus in? Will you let him in and start dealing with this stuff in your heart? And if you are a Christian here this morning, are you creating, carving out time in your life, space in your life, silence in your life on a regular basis to allow Jesus to continue doing this work in you? Because we're never done. We're never finished. This is something that goes on through the course of our lives until the day we die. We're never perfectly cleansed in this life. But the blood of Jesus creates a way for God to come into your heart, to dwell in your heart, and to begin taking it away, purifying you, cleansing you, healing you, purifying you. Is there space in your life to do that? Lean on Jesus. Load all of the weight and the burden of all that perilous stuff in your heart. Load it on top of Jesus. Trust his cleansing blood. Let him have his way in you. Let him carry the sin away so that he can have his way in your heart. Let's pray.